asking the right questions will unlock your best life. They are the keys to enjoying more clarity, passion, balance, and confidence. Hi, I'm Todd Parker. And I'm Bridget Sampson. We're certified executive and life coaches, communication professors, trainers, consultants, and most importantly, parents. We're also dear friends who love diving into those deep conversations about life, relationships, family, and careers. All things about being a curious and compassionate human on this planet. So please join us, and we know you'll find something valuable that resonates with wherever you are on your journey. Welcome back to the Right Questions podcast. I am your co-host, Todd Parker. And I'm doing fantastic today. It is a wonderful day. I am excited. I am pumped. We don't have a guest. We are just going to do, a, we're going to lean into some of our expertise today. Bridget, Professor Sampson, how are you doing today? Yes, Professor Parker, I am doing well. And I'm excited to dive back into being a professor, which we both are. And as you know, I'm a retired professor. So we're going to have some fun today playing with our, with our academic content, but making it very relatable in the real world. Yes, yes. Well, we are, as you said, professors. You're a retired emeritus professor. We both have taught and Bridget taught interpersonal communication for uh, years and years and years. And not only in the academic setting, but certainly in our coaching and, you know, consulting lives, we do, we deal with a lot of interpersonal communication, right? Communication between two people. And so we thought it would be interesting at the end of the year here, the holidays coming up to focus on a question that would benefit Everybody, including ourselves, is no one is left out of this one. How can I get along with my family is the question today. How can I get along with my family, right? We're about to be at the dinner table, at the lunch table. Some people are going to be there. Some people won't, right? Like some people, some people, right? Bridget, I mean, I've been hearing from a lot of people. We don't, we don't quite sure how this is going to go. Some people got vaccines. Some people didn't, right? Maybe some people are going to zoom into the holiday. There might be some raw emotions around, um, just societal stuff that's going on or just on a positive note, people having not seen each other, right? Like getting together and falling back into patterns of behavior, dare I say, patterns of communication. And today's highlight, we're highlighting family communication, right? Dare we say falling into those patterns that I know, Bridget, you can probably speak and we will, like we just become kids again around our parents if we're lucky enough to have them around and, you know, or we have kids, you know, we act differently in different settings. Let's put it that way. So today, that's what it's all about. I'll throw it to you, Bridget. What, what, what are you thinking about for today? Yeah. Well, as you just said that, something came to me that I realized that last year I didn't get together with extended family because we were really in the part of COVID where it really felt unsafe. So I didn't even see my parents or my older daughter. It was just me and my husband and my younger daughter who were living together during that time. So I think there's a lot of 
expectation around this holiday season of people coming back together and seeing each other again, but also maybe some anxiety around that. How is it going to be? It's been so long since we've been together. Political, maybe there's more awareness of differing political views. And as you said, differing opinions on the vaccination. And so we really just want to do our part to share what we've learned as, as we said, as professors who've studied and taught family communication for many years, but also as human beings who are part of families, you know, and have navigated some of those tough moments where there's disagreement, but we want there to be love and connection and for people to to be together and be supportive of each other, even when there is difference and disagreement. So that's what we're, what I'm hoping we can convey some ideas and some examples that will be helpful for folks today. Well, Bridget, like, because families are formed, right, created and reinforced, maintained, we could say, based on communication, the rituals that we have, like holidays, and even the things that are part of everyday life, like you just highlighted, aren't really a part of everyday life in that same way for some of us, right? Some people, we actually live with our you know, parents or, you know, and I have my kids, of course, you, you know, your kids are out. But these are the things, these, these communication rituals are the things that bring the family along, like reinforce or challenge, right? That's what we're going to talk about today, the norms that have been created over all the years. So the first kind of idea we want to highlight is this idea of um, conversation and conformity within the family. Because some families have a very open, right? It's a very, what we call a conversation orientation that is high conversation orientation that where we interact freely. We have lots of spontaneity. We have lots of frequent interactions and we, we can talk about like, you know, just about anything, right? We, we, it's open and some of our families are like that. <laughs> And some are not. <laughs> and some are not, right? Yes. And this isn't to judge. This is to for you to recognize what is what are the patterns that go on in my family and how do I want to engage in them or recognize them and, you know, I don't know, challenge, do something about them. You know, that we're going to get to that by the end of like, how can we do something? What is our influence in this whole situation? So, yeah, this idea of conversation orientation and conformity orientation, right? Because we may be very open in the topics we discuss, but we may be very closed in what idea you're allowed to have about the topic, right? We can talk about anything, but it needs to be talked about a specific way. Does that, does that ring any, any true for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it also makes me think about all, all the potential families we may be members of. I just want to call out you know, I like to have a very inclusive view of family, you know, and some people have chosen families, some people grew up in foster care, you know, some people's families have disowned them because they were not supportive of their identity and they have new families that they've created. So I just want to acknowledge all of that and also say that for most of us, we move in and out of multiple family environments and communication cultures. And so for me, as you were talking about, you know, conformity versus... um what was it again? Conf- uh, conformity versus conversation orientation. Conformity like versus how- conversation yeah. orientation. Right. So uh, it's been a She's few emeritus years, people, professor. since I, emeritus. I, yes, I am retired. But I remember <laughs> teaching all of this. And I remember the fun conversations we would have with our students, right? Because they could all relate. It's real world stuff. But, you know, I grew up with my parents. I was an only child, so that's kind of unique. And we had very, very open communication. We still do. I'm 53, and my parents and I can talk about anything and everything. 
In my extended family, it was a little different. You know, it was pretty open, but there was more conformity. My grandmother was a big force in my life. She was one of the most loving, amazing people, such an important part of my life. And my communication with her was a little bit more, there was a little more conformity. Like, you know, grandma was a little more Nana. She was a little more conservative, you know, but loving, loving, wonderful. Not it's, this is again, like you said, we're not, we want to talk about this, not with any value judgments, but so like I knew that outside of my home with my parents, there were certain things that I didn't feel as free to talk about. And then also when I got married, you know, Neil's family, who is my family now as well, and both of his parents sadly have passed, but I spent many years, decades with them as part of my family. You know, the communication was, again, not as open as what I had experienced with my parents, which I've now realized is so rare for it to be so, so open. Um, so I had to navigate that and kind of figure out what what are they comfortable with? I'm not going to come in as this, this guy's girlfriend and like be like, okay, let's talk about everything, right? I had to pick up on cues and adapt and be flexible and learn what their family rituals were. They also, my husband's family is Mexican-American. So there were a lot of rituals and traditions that I wasn't as that I wasn't familiar familiar with. So I learned and embraced the culture and the food. And so all of that came to mind as you were talking about these different family rituals and communication patterns. And I hope that others, as you're listening, I hope our listeners are thinking, wow, you know, how much conformity was there in my nuclear family and my extended family and other families that I've been a part of? And what are my thoughts about that? What are my feelings about that? And how have I navigated that and adapted and learned as I've gotten older? So like if that's fantastic, because if you're so if your family is high in conformity orientation to give it some academic thoughts, right, just some labels to it, if they're high in conformity orientation, then you there seek harmony, y'all seek harmony in the group you but with that comes a lot of interdependence and obedience. If you're low, on the other hand, in conformity orientation, and your family is, we're going to encourage individuality and independence and going to be far more equality or egalitarian in nature because, you know, obedience and following the law of the family isn't, isn't so the thing, right? So that brings us to this idea of what makes for effective, I'm going to say what makes for effective communication. Let's move into a little bit of this I'm going to use a big word here, dialectic, right? Which is just an idea, a fancy word for tension. This tension between kids, and you might have been a kid, (laughs) or you may have kids, when we try to kind of pull away from, and and I don't mean pull away from the family in like a physical sense, or I mean in a, in a, not, no, not in a physical sense. I mean that the opposite way, but to, to pull away and create autonomy in our lives, be these autonomous creatures that think for ourselves and make our own choices versus like being well-connected to the family. And there's a tension that exists there for every family. So I just want everyone to recognize the healthier families, and I do mean healthier families, right? There's a little, there is some data and research behind all this, to say the least. The healthier families understand this tension and allow their children to, you know, and you might be one of these people, to go be independent, to fly, to make mistakes, not too big mistakes, but to go and start to understand life from their vantage point rather than from the family's vantage point, right? We talk about this in a couple of ways. We say enmeshed families suffer from far too much consensus, too little 
independence and a very high demand for loyalties, where the disengaged families, the whole other end of this spectrum, right, too enmeshed or too disengaged on the other end of that spectrum, we've got families who have very little cohesion. Right. So we might seek out everybody's opinion for everything all the time. And if that happens and you're going to your dinner table for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, right? Like you just had like you might want to know how to manage those ideas, right? By setting boundaries, by having limits on what we're going to allow and how we're going to communicate or what patterns of communication are allow for other people to feel heard, to feel like they, they still matter in your life, but that you don't have to take every idea that comes your way. I don't know. what. How does that hit you, Bridget? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm thinking about a lot of moments at the dinner table. You know, I'm thinking about a lot of examples. And, and honestly, of where I haven't always handled all that well, you know, and I'm always trying to figure out how I can do better. And yeah, I know it resonates a lot, Todd. I want to hear more about the theory because you're reminding me it's like my brain is going to all these moments and all these examples. And that's why I think theory is so valuable because it sparks those moments of insight. Like, oh, that's what was going on there. You know, it was an issue of enmeshment. It was. And me trying to pull away. I'm trying to be autonomous. Yeah. Right. And I had so much autonomy and I, for better or worse, you know, that sometimes I had too much freedom to like pull away and be really confrontational and really kind of detach without having that, you know, that balance of, I think coming in and out, you know, is kind of the balance we want. And especially for, for our kids, you know, know? I'm thinking of some coaching, some clients that I coach, you know, and, and, you know, we coach families, we coach, you know, uh, high school and, you know, college age, you know, kids and, and families, uh, I say, should say students because they're not all, not all kids are adolescents and, and young adults and, and adults, some of them, you know, very much adults in college, you know. And their families around communication, right? And, and coming together, unifying. So, so a lot of this does come up. And so what I'm thinking about is if you're a parent out there and you're listening to this and you're thinking about your own, hopefully your own kids and how you relate to them. And, you know, I talk about a lot is creating more emotionally intelligent parents so we can create more emotionally intelligent kids. You know, when, when, if you recognize what we're saying here, that there's this pull, we know our children want to pull away from us and that we, we want to support that growth and their autonomy and in, independence and not be so interdependent and enmeshed with the family that they don't need consensus from the family to make decisions, right? That requires something of us in those moments, parents, I say, to, to then, um, emotional control over things, over self when we disagree with the things that our kids are saying, to ask them questions and draw them out, right? These are strategies for healthy communication that allow for, well, your kids to feel what we call, or you, maybe you could see yourself in this in multiple ways, what we call confirming messages, right? And I'll juxtapose that with something we call disconfirming or even disagreeing messages because there's multiple levels of, you know, uh, messages that we can send. So what we want to give are confirming messages, messages that make people feel heard and recognized and valued, right? Because once we feel valued, we're far more inclined to listen. We're far more inclined to be agreeable, right? Uh, so I'm curious, Bridget, but I know, you know, we have a strategy that we're going to highlight in a second. D- did anything come to mind though? Is there anything you do that you can think of either as a kid or as the kid in your family with your parents or as the parent with your own children to that 
is uh, confirming messages rather than, you know, disagreeing or disconfirming messages? To be honest, yeah, I love, I love this theory and this idea because I think when my kids were younger, I did more of the disconfirming. You know, they would love to push my buttons and challenge me and throw out ideas that they knew I would disagree with and that would get me emotional, you know? You had debaters. Well, you <laughs> right. had- Right. Yeah. Had oh, like- my kids. Oh, my goodness. Yes. One, a, <laughs> a champion, de- literally a champion debater on the national stage. And the other- This is not a joke. Should have, this could have been, a- you know, just, just really yes. both, um, you know, so they, so- I can remember how I would, when that would happen, I would disconfirm. I would say, no, no, that's not right. Because, you know, and the funny thing is we all agree, like on the core things in life and politically and, you know, values and things like that. But we would just really get into it. And what's funny is now, so my kids are 20 and 24. I think they would, for the most part, agree that almost all of my messages are confirming. Like no matter what they say or do. I've learned over the 20 and 24 years, like, it doesn't work. I'm not, I'm not going to change their mind and nor should I, nor do I need to. Like, they are their own human beings. They deserve to have their own opinions. And the more I, you know, the more I kind of engage, the more fun it is for them, right? To keep you, you do that to me too. Everybody does that. It's like poke, poke, poke. You know, I guess I'm fun to do that too, you know? So it's, so now I'm like so zen and just like, great. Oh, that, is that what you think about that? Okay, cool. That's great. Or is that what you're going to do? You know, and I think both of them would say that there have been times where they did that and they kind of knew they weren't really going to do the thing or they didn't really like believe wholeheartedly in this certain viewpoint, but they were just kind of playing with me to see. And once, once I stopped, you know, disconfirming, right? And getting so worked up about stating my view and how it was different, it kind of diffused it all. And and I I think my relationship with my kids is pretty chill now because they still do those things. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> well you oh, learned I just so confirm. You I confirm all. I confirm. <laughs> when we talk about what you have control over, right? Like you not only do you have control over yourself, you have influence over your kids by controlling yourself. And that's exactly what you're doing there is just allowing them an autonomy for them to be their own person, like you said. And you, I'm sure you weigh in though when I do. That's, that was where I was going to go. And I wanted to say that, of course, if our children, adults or young children, you know, or at any age are doing something or thinking something that's potentially harmful, we have to step in as parents. But I think we can do that in a confirming way. Like we were talking about this before we got on the podcast, right? Like saying, I understand that you feel that way. I I completely get it that you see it this way, that you want to do this or that you're having this feeling or this thought. Like it's still confirming of their humanity and their feelings and their thoughts and their desires Right. But then once we do that, once we offer that genuine confirmation, we can then add in an alternate perspective if it's needed. That's that's what I wanted to get to, Bridget, this idea that because I don't want you to out there sitting there like, oh, they just like, you know, confirm everything. No, 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 no. Like we have big, strong, very real opinions on everything. So the idea, though, is that you don't get to decide everything for everybody and not even your kids, right? But, you know, if we're talking about families here, that's why kids keep coming up. Just like you didn't want your parents to decide everything for you or whoever raised you, your grandparents, you know, you know, a friend, what have you, right? So this is the strategy. So now here's the tool. There are ways to send confirming messages that don't um, agree with what 
the person is saying. All right. So we talk about it in three different levels of confirming communication or confirming messages. So we talk about it as like the lowest level is just recognizing that a person said something and spoke, right? Like, and just they're here. They said something. It deserves to be recognized. And you'd be shocked. I'm going to jump right in. Like, if you think about yourself, how many times you're looking at your phone or some piece of technology, a TV, what have you, and a, your child or your partner or somebody says something to you or one, and the most basic fundamental act of confirming is missed at that moment because you don't recognize them. So that's the first level, right? Just recognizing someone that the feeling of dismissiveness that comes in that moment, you have felt it yourself. So I might challenge you to think all the times, not purposefully that you did that and maybe challenge you to make a change. So first level, recognizing just most basic level. Second level, acknowledging. So you recognize and then you acknowledge. It's like, okay, I, I see you. I hear your ideas and your feelings. It's certainly a stronger form of communication. It sends a signal that like, I not only heard you, but like, I might have some ideas about it coming up. Right. And then those ideas coming up, recognize, acknowledge that maybe that sounds like paraphrasing, right? Oh, I hear you saying this. I hear you saying that. Sounds like you feel like this. Something Bridget, you and I coach ourselves and everyone around communication, paraphrase what you heard. And it's so underused, like just to, just to say in your own words back what the person just said to you is so validating and shows that you're really not just listening, but you're processing and you're like, okay, let me think of it. So you're saying that this is how you feel and this is why. And it's based on your experience. And you can leave it there. That's the whole point. At that moment, if you're sitting around your Thanksgiving, you know, Christmas, just family table. It's not even a holiday. You're just hanging out, right? And this is happening. It's a get together. You can stop right where Bridget just left it. Yep. It doesn't mean you agree. And you're not, you have not expressed agreement. You're just acknowledging. That's the word. That's the, the, what we're talking about here, that that person has this feeling, viewpoint, thought, whatever it is. And it's so important for our human connection to do that for each other. Yeah. Now, there's a third level, like I said. So if you do actually agree, you can endorse it. You say, yeah, you know, so I recognize, I acknowledge, and I fed it back to you. Now I endorse it. Like, I agree with you. Highest form of a confirming message. But you don't have to endorse something to help someone feel recognized and acknowledged. And that's really the takeaway from this. You use this strategy. I promise you. I don't want to say promise. I have a strong inkling that things will go better for you with your family if you can master this idea and start to put it into practice in your personal, you know, absolutely, personal life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I certainly wanna, use it. Yeah. Dad, I wanna, don't be listening to this. Now, now he knows all my tricks. <laughs> we're my sister. Send this to all our she's family gonna know members like, all hey, the listen tricks, to this. you know, my partners. <laughs> right, like, so right. that's what you were doing. Right. But can I, I want to, do a tiny tangent that is more related, and I'll come back, but to interpersonal communication in general in the family. I know we're, we're really focused on how to get along as a family because it's so important and how to minimize conflict and keep connection and, you know, that sort of thing. But with this, with endorsement, one thing I noticed that people do a lot is they'll, they'll say, Oh yeah, the same thing happened to me. And then they'll go off on a tangent and make it all about them. <laughs> And that's not always, that doesn't always feel very confirming, right? So I would urge you to try to, if you want to endorse, like endorse 
and acknowledge their experience and, oh, that must have been really hard when you went through that or whatever. It was, it's fine to then piggyback and be like, I had a similar experience, but there's a really clear line when you're one of those people who just is always talking about yourself and takes any opportunity to jump on what someone else said to make it all about you. Exactly. I know this is yeah. a whole other lecture in interpersonal <laughs> communication. Talk. Well, like, it's good, that's lecture anyone, five. I know. And I know. Anyone I know, listening. But it's related, could, right? <laughs> th- yeah, they know that you, all you listening know that that happens. You know, that person, that family member, that friend, you know, maybe you're that person and you got to go like, take a deep breath and go, Oh my gosh, I do that. I should stop. It's a nuanced thing to have a balance just to throw in because I'm so big on, you know, communication being reciprocal and hearing the other person and asking questions and genuine curiosity and inquiry about other people's lives, but then also sharing because it's also not... It's not um, great family communication to not do any talking and to just be silent and to be aloof and not share anything. So it's this delicate balance and dance of like, oh, you're talking about you. Let me ask you more about you and and endorse what you're saying by, you know, paraphrasing it and, and maybe sharing an experience of mine, but moving in and out of those things and not making it all about if you. If you are someone that does that, some self-deprecating humor or stories where you are, you know, not the hero or something like where something is where you're being, (laughs) it might be good for you um, to bring it down a couple. But so Bridget, you are talking specifically like you, you moved us, you said not, you said you were taking a tangent, but actually you moved us right into a disconfirming communication, right? So I'm going to quickly say, we said there were different levels, right? Of confirming communication, then disagreeing messages. So confirming messages, disagreeing messages, and then disconfirming communication or disconfirming messages. So we talked about confirming messages. The disagreeing messages, I'll say very quickly, are right in between. They lie in between disconfirming and confirming messages. They're the middle ground. They're like not quite as, you know, problematic, but they're still not great. So being argumentative or what we call argumentativeness, complaining about things, which is really giving, you know, not adding a lot to a situation when we're complaining. And then the most destructive way that you can send a disagreeing message is being like aggressive, like attacking, you know, people's self-concept, what we call ad hominem attacks and argument, right? Like just attack instead of talking about an issue or, or an idea. That brings us to what you were saying, Bridget, about disconfirming communication. So I hear you a couple ideas in the story, you, you, the little, what you thought was a tangent. I hear a couple ideas here. So the, there's seven types of disconfirming responses. And I'm highlighting this. Remember, we're being professors today. Like we do this all the time. It, I'm just, um, so we're trying to, we're giving you some bullet points on to, you know, what is going on at our, t- at our family tables and how do we make it better? That's what we're doing here. What you were talking about, I think, Bridget, has to do with one, a type of a response we call impervious response, right? Which just fails to acknowledge that another person is communicating. Or I should say, I was talking about that when people don't walk in, you know, people walk in or kid walks in, we don't pay attention or someone says something and we just, have you ever said something at a table and nobody responds to it? You're like, what? I know you heard me. What is going on here? Can someone at least nod and be like, yeah, yeah, or... I heard you. The turkey's not that good. I mean, mom, it is. It really is that good. And you know what? I, I won't go. I, I could go off on all of these and say a lot, but I think we do that to kids a lot. And I really want us all to not do that to our kiddos. Our kiddos need to know that we're hearing them as much. Our kiddos deserve just as much acknowledgement for the things they say as adults. That's right. That's right. Oh, Bridget, you're thinking you're, I'm getting a little nostalgic. I'm thinking back to my, 
childhood table. I was actually talking about this the other day with Rebecca, with my partner Rebecca, and we were saying how the kids get to get up. Maybe like, yeah, it's like, what are the patterns, right? The kids want to get up from the table and like, do you let them up or can they have their phones at the table now? Like I didn't have a phone. You didn't have a phone. I didn't, I barely had, I had a Game Boy at one point, but I wasn't allowed to, I was not allowed. My parents will remember this. They're probably listening to this. I'm sure I wasn't allowed to get up and go anywhere. I had to sit there while the adults talked and drone on and listen to the crap that I had no idea what they were, who that person was and what we were talking about. And now, and now it seems a little bit different. It's a little more maybe laissez-faire, a little more lax, like, oh, let's let the kids go do this or that. It's just, it was an interesting observation. Yes. And the second, if I can go and give the second one, since we are both, Professor Parker, if you don't mind, because it's related is interrupting, right? The second is confirming. I'm sorry. Wait, hold on. Stop. Wait, what? I'm the just second, kidding. oh, wait <laughs> a minute. Kidding. I'm just trying to <laughs> interrupt you. Parker, we're, t- we're co-teaching this lecture here and I'm remembering all the theory as we're going through it. The second one is interrupting responses, which is another one we do to kids, right? It's like we say to the kids, we say, no, no, I will not let you interrupt. We say to the kids, don't interrupt Aunt Sally, right? Oh, that's rude. But then when, when little Joey or little whoever is speaking, it's like, Oh, uh, anyway, so do you want some more of the, you want some more mashed potatoes? And wait, I was saying something the poor little person is thinking, right? So impervious responses, interrupting responses. What's the next one? Do you ever have the experience where you said something and someone says something back and it makes no sense because they weren't listening and you're like, I know that fool was not listening to me right now. They are not listening. That makes zero sense. Yeah. So that's what we call irrelevant responses. And it's incredibly dismissive because it says literally anything, a thought in my head, a dog barking, whatever's going on, literally anything was more important than listening to what you just said right now. And nobody likes that. And it ties right into tangential responses, go right along with irrelevant responses. That's the fourth one, right? Like they're basically the same thing, but tangential responses, they do something else. And it goes along sometimes with the one-upper that you talked about, right? the piggybacker. These things, they happen so quick. And I want you to pay attention. We want you to pay attention from this at your dinner table, okay? Or lunch, breakfast, whatever. The tangential response takes the irrelevant response and then turns it. It's like kind of irrelevant. And then it turns it into what that person wants to talk about, right? Like, we're going to, oh, yeah, that, that sounds like when, no, that was not it. Oh, not at all what I was talking yep. about. It's like, oh, you just walked in the door, like dying to tell this story and waiting for any opening that is not even related so that you could run off on your story. That you exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. Wait, by the way, I have to say something, Professor Parker. We are not suggesting that you point these out to people, okay? We hope that you will, in a lighthearted way, recognize them and know that that person likely never took an interpersonal communication class, likely did not listen to this podcast, is unaware. Be kind. Be gracious. We're All we're saying to you is try not to do it yourself. Because I can admit that I do these things occasionally, and I'm aware, and I know the theory, and we are professors, and we catch ourselves, right? So don't be calling people out, please. That's not what we're saying. Just know that. All right. <laughs> now, this is where knowledge becomes power because you get to know it. You take the information, I should say, and turn it into knowledge by practicing it, but not labeling it out loud. You have an inner monologue. You can observe. You're an adult. You can observe 
think things, not say them out loud, and then make choices with your communication, which is what we're about to get to um, with some suggestions. Uh, we kind of sprinkled them across. So we're going to be really clear and, and precise in what we're suggesting here as to how you manage these interactions. This is all to empower you. It's not to poo-poo or label other people or to psychoanalyze or try to, you know, pontificate, you know, on what's going on with other people. And that leads us to actually to number five, the impersonal responses. Um, I'm going to read what I wrote here. Monologues filled with impersonal, impersonal, intellectualized and generalized statements. So the speaker never interacts with other individuals on a personal level. So this is like someone that sits in ceremony and wants to, you know, just have, you know, they say kiss the ring for the you know for the king and the queen it's just like come on and if you think back to what we said about family communication and uh, uh conformity versus conversation orientation how open how close there are figures in families that play this role and these types of disconfirming communication messages go right along with it. So these aren't like separate categories. These are the hows for the, uh, for the different theories we're talking about. I'll just throw the last two out there because I want to move on. Um, ambiguous responses, which are like kind of vague and have a bunch of meanings behind them. And it's kind of like everyone at the table is like, what are they like? What? Like, was that, was that what they meant? And then later on, you have to talk about it with someone like, did you hear what Bridget said? Is that what she actually, is that what you got from it? Cause I got something totally different. Was she talking about you? Was she talking about, right? Really vague, weird things, um, ambiguous. And then things that are just incongruous. The last one, number seven incongruous responses, which are just contradictory messages where we say, Oh, that person seems to be talking at us. Two sides of their mouth is. Well, we're saying incongruous response. It just, the, the verbal, the nonverbal, this stuff doesn't, it doesn't unify. It doesn't make sense. And it creates cognitive dissonance, you know, around the rest of the people. Or, could, or I should say not cognitive dissonance, just confusion among the table and, and who's around. So it leaves everyone feeling a little weird. What can it lead to, Bridget? You know, defensiveness. And we have this word, we, ca- we talk about it as face work in interpersonal communication, that we're always managing our faces, which is basically our identity and our outward appearance to people, not just physically, but li- like um, the metaphorical sense. And so what happens when we send these types of messages is we become defensive. We, at, like when we receive these messages or your kids receive these messages, or siblings, we become defensive and we have to then protect ourselves. We have to save face. That's when we start attacking. That's when we start being very aggressive. And that's when we start really usually making slights towards people's character. And that's when the thing devolves in a way that we don't like, right? So what do we do about it? Like, how do we reduce the defensiveness, Right. There's a couple ideas about what we can do. And really, they come to us in the form of, of tensions, again, that each of us has to be aware of, we would recommend, and manage. So, Bridget, do you remember the first one? I do, and it's it's such an important one. And we talk about this in coaching all the time. Evaluation versus description, right? So are you sending an evaluative message, a judgmental message, a message that clearly you think something is not quite right about the other person, what they said, who they are, or is it just descriptive, right? Oh, so you got a new job and you're working here and you're doing this, right? Descriptive, paraphrasing, validating maybe even, right? Versus, oh, so that's your new job, huh? Oh, you re- 
Interesting, huh? You think you really think that's uh, using that college degree that we paid for? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like slipping it in there, right? Just <laughs> oh my really, gosh, that's a good you know aligned with your your education, huh? Interesting. You know, sometimes it's subtle. I'm probably making it blatant. It's often subtle, but it's it's a little dig, you know. And then usually the person is denies. I didn't mean anything, right? But it's evaluative. Well, and I would say it's subtle because we're used to it. Like we've been doing, we've been, uh, if we're not aware of it, right, not made aware of it, we've been in this our whole lives. So it's just what's normal. And so we're trying to highlight some of this so that you can say, oh, that's very interesting. I noticed that there was a lot of evaluation and not a lot of description when I shared my new job. And then this is, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take the second one, Bridget. Controlling communication versus problem orientation, the second tension that we're, we're going to highlight for you to manage, right? Think about your friend. I'm going to take it out of the family for a second or I'll leave in the family. Your sister, brother, somebody comes to you and they're like telling you about an issue they have. What is your orientation to that? Do you have an immediate agenda of what they should do, how they should solve the problem? And then do you describe, evaluate, like they go kind of, do you, prescribe something and tell them, are you directive in what they should do, which would be considered controlling? Like, this is what you should do. Oh, I know what you should do. Oh, and then that happened to me and this is what happened. So this is exact versus like problem orientation, which would say like, be curious, ask questions, help them understand what's going on, what the problem is. Ask them, what options do they see available? Help them work through it, but not try to control the outcome for them. You don't have to save or protect them, even if they're your kids, you know, 20-something-year-old kids, right, Bridget? You can probably speak to this. You have to help them figure it out, and that means helping them work through the problem, right? doesn't mean leaving them to just do it on their own, but not controlling it. Yeah, it's actually pretty rare that people are wanting like advice and solutions. And if they are, they'll ask, you know, <laughs> like it's like that thing about unsolicited advice is really something to pay attention to. You know, if they're not asking for advice. I say all the time, ask them, just say, or I say, Rebecca said, do you want me to listen? Or are you looking for advice right now? And she'll say, I want you, sometimes she'll go, I want you to listen for like five, 10 minutes. And then I'll tell you, when it's your turn to help solve the problem, right? Because I have a, I have an, I want to solve problems. Yeah. And that's okay. It yeah. comes from a good place, but that kind of meta communication is really important in relationships. And we can do it even in close family relationships. It's like, tell me what you're needing from me in our communication. Cause by the way, you don't realize this all the time, but I'm going to tell you for real. It's a relief to the person that wants to solve your problem. Like if you tell me, I just get to listen. Oh my gosh. Like, okay. All right. Like, and I was having this conversation and coaching a client the other day. Like, I like, let's get the popcorn. Like, like, give me the popcorn. Like, I'm going to listen. Okay. Tell me the story. Oh, that sounds very interesting. And now I can have, I can come with a different mindset and a different set of listening skills actually to the situation. Yeah. 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 I want to just jump through a couple of these strategy versus spontaneity. Like, you know, having spontaneous conversations, right. And not, not so, so in always so like intentional and strategic people sense that. And it's like with family, it can be like, ah, this feels kind of like a business discussion, which is a little more strategic using your empathy over neutrality, right? Like people 
want you to like part of identifying with people's lived experience is showing empathy and taking their perspective. You don't going back to confirming messages earlier. We don't have to agree with the way people are always living their lives, but we can absolutely agree that they have the freedom to do that and do whatever they, they want. It's not our decision. It's not our choice. And if they haven't asked for our opinion, it's really not much of our business. Just have empathy, have, be supportive, right? Jump in. But neutrality can often be, there's a fine line and neutra- there's a place for neutrality to be sure. Just like there's a place for strategy, just like there is a time to step in and be evaluative controlling, but we're recommending that the more confirming messages come from this other side of the tension. Um, there was two more, right, Bridget? I think superiority there was two more. versus equality. So, so important. We all know those folks, right? Who have that kind of superior air. Right. About them and are, can be patronizing. And it's not, it's not spoken explicitly, but there's just this sense you get in the way they share things about themselves and the way they respond to what others are sharing that there's this air of superiority. And we really want to work to, regardless of age differences, maybe differences in, I don't know, educational levels or careers or we're all human beings. We want to create a feeling of egalitarianism. And so please make every effort to be as inclusive of everyone and honoring of everyone's identities and work and passions and nothing is better or worse than anything else. And so that those folks who have that air of superiority, they're really, I think, creating some tension that we don't need to have at family events. So make sure you're not that person. That's even well in the said. <laughs> creating tension that we don't need to have at family events. Maybe there's another place for us to have those conversations, but this this may not be it. What you're saying there, Bridget, goes hand in hand with the final one, which is this idea of certainty versus provisionalism when we communicate, when we speak. So I have a saying that I got from, you know, we're rhetoricians, we work in rhetorical theory, and I'm now I'm using some academic words here, but the, the whole point is that we're dealing with like the sending and receiving of messages. And so because I'm, uh, I teach argument, I've been well versed in argument, right? the, and, and rhetoric, there's this idea we call the, well, I'll just say we have this idea. That we walk into every situation, and I've adopted this as, as my perspective in every situation, that I don't have a monopoly on truth, that I don't have it cornered, that I'm one voice in a chorus of many, and that every time I engage other people, I should, I really should be open to new experience, to new ideas, and they're going to introduce me, I go like this, to a little bit, if you're not watching, I'm spanning my hands, right, from being gripped together to farther apart, like loosening, uh, uh, widening our perspective on what is, because none of us has a full perspective on everything. And so if I walk in with that idea that I don't have certainty, but rather this certainty versus provisionalism, then I can um, not just acknowledge that, but I can listen more intently. I can relate without having to be right or, or be certain or be the authority in the room, which goes right back to this idea that Bridget just shared of superiority, you know, versus equality, right? We all have something to share here. To make it, just to make it concrete, it is concrete, but to make it, you know, specific Specific. I think of when I think about this, I think about those those folks who are likely to say things in absolutes, like she's a terrible person, you know. And it's like I've had someone say something like that, and it's like, oh, I love that person, I care about that person. And could you could you know maybe just say, oh, I don't really care for her. Like that's fine, you don't care for her. But to say with such certainty to talk about this tension, certainty versus provisionalism. 
you know, it's hard if someone disagrees, then you're, you're like inviting conflict, you know, versus just saying it in a slightly different way that allows that this is your opinion. You have every right to state it, but that someone might disagree. That's what being provisional means versus certain. This is, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example with my father and he'll laugh when he hears this. Like I'll say, I'm giving away all my secrets here. But, and, and I love my dad. We get along, you know, fantastically and, and we've learned to have contentious conversations over the years, uh, like when I say contentious, just like things we both care about that we don't necessarily see eye to eye on in far more effective ways, healthier, more productive ways. And one of the ways that we do that is with this idea of certainty versus provisional. I mean, one of the things I do is to go back to recognition, acknowledging and, and endorsing. I say, gosh, dad, like he's going to hear this now. Like, gosh, dad, like that's really interesting. Like, I hear what you're saying, this, this, and this, this. I don't really see it that way. And of course, you know, I have a strong opinion on this, but you make some, you make some interesting points and I'm going to have to like think about it. Like, I need to think about what you said here and just end it at that, right? Like, we don't always end at that to be always honest, but a lot of times we do. We've learned over the years, I should say. Now we do end there. We stop and say, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll go, may, send me an article about that. And he'll say, you know, yeah, I will. And he'll, I'll say, I'll send you something too. That, so we can both learn more because neither one of us has a corner on the truth. Yep. I think that's a great example. We should all try to do that at some point during the holidays with our family. I love it. So to wrap it up, Bridget, I want to talk about this, this idea of invitational communication to bring this full circle. Like, what are we really aimed at? Inviting others in. This is where we started. Right? Inviting others in to see the world in some way, the way we see it, but really just open and invitational to get along, to answer the question, like, how do I get along with my family better? We've given you a lot of ideas, but here's a couple, you know, concrete things for you to focus on and pay attention to, right? So Bridget, you want to take the first one? I'll take the second one. Yeah, we both have meetings in a couple minutes, so we're going to do this. <laughs> we're going to give it to you. Seek more information. Ask questions. Be open to more information. Paraphrase the speaker's thoughts and feelings. We've talked about that quite a bit. So important. Remember to do that. And the last one is agree. Agree with the critic. Because when people are at your holiday or, you know, family table, there's certain to be some veiled or even overt criticism that happens. And one thing that we all need to know how to deal with is that. Like, how do I deal with some some criticism that kind of triggers me, I don't feel good about, gives me some negative emotions? Right? How do I deal with that and still stay in there with the family? She just told you, seek some more information. Ask for some specifics. Request more information from the person. Guess about the specifics if you have to, right? Are you saying this? Are you saying that? Like, if they're unable to provide the specifics, is maybe they don't know what they're talking about. Maybe they don't have any evidence for the thing that they just said. And maybe you don't have to respond defensively. You can just seek information and let them realize through questions that they don't have a fully realized or formed thought about you, and then you can help round it out. But let's ask for the specifics, paraphrase what you hear them saying, and then if you want to, may even agree with them. Like, you know what? Wow, that's, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I can see, I can see how you would see that, you know? Um, 
and do things like that. So all of this, in all of this, your language choice matters, your tone matters, your demeanor matters, your smile matters, your gesture matters, right? All of this, certainly far more than we could give you in a 50-minute podcast today. But we, again, we wanted to put on our professor hats for a second and really just offer you some tools and some hopefully very valuable tools to help you manage yourself and the family situations that you're sure to encounter in the months to come. Bridget, what are your final thoughts for us as we head out? Just a thank you to you, Professor Parker. I know you are currently still Professor Parker, and your students are very lucky to be in your classes. Um, you really brought this academic content to life, and I thoroughly enjoy talking about it with you. And I also have no doubt that my family gatherings for the holidays will be a little more harmonious because we had this conversation. So thank you. Well, fantastic. I'm happy to hear that. And as we always say, we hope you got value from this. Share it. You know, send it around, maybe share it with your family in anticipation of some of these events. So everyone's on the same page. Doesn't need to be a secret. Everyone could just be back there with the same kind of knowledge. Knowledge is power when, or information is power when it's turned into knowledge. So with that being said, be good people, make great choices like we've recommended here today. And we will see you next time. Happy holidays. (laughs) Happy holidays. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Right Questions podcast. We hope this episode sparked something that fuels your own inquiry and transformation. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to learn more about the work we do and how it can benefit you, check out our website, sampsoncoachingandconsulting.com. And connect with me on Instagram at the Bridget Sampson. And you can find me at Todd Parker Official. We'll catch you next week. Until then, dare to ask the right questions.